I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Batter up. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to A Pod of Their Own. This is episode 74 of A Pod of Their Own. I am Allison McCaig, and I am joined this week by my two co-hosts, Linda Surovich. Hello, Linda. Hey, Allison. And Kellyanne Healy. Hello, Kellyanne. Hello, Allison. Hello, Linda. Hello. I'm doing my my radio voice. (laughs) Radio voice. (laughs) We are also joined this week by a very special guest, Andrea Williams, who is a storyteller and author of the new book, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues. Welcome to the show, Andrea. We are so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. I do not have a radio voice, though, so <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just going to be regular Andrea, but I'm very happy to be here. I was just trying to do my my WPXR <laughs> imitation from my classical station that I was listening to this morning, so... <laughs> no, it was dope, so I'm not even going to... I'm not even trying to replicate that. It's just going to be me, so... We're, well, we're, that's the better... I think that's better, personally. You're very sultry when you put it on. Kellyanne is, yeah. She likes to put yeah. on her... Her, her radio voice. Um, but <laughs> Andrea, we're so excited to have you and to talk about this book, which we absolutely adored and everyone should read it. And ab- obviously at the end of the show, we will tell you guys where you can find it. Um, but we're so excited to talk about this book. But we're just going to start with um, telling our listeners a little bit about you. So Linda, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I was curious, um, how did you become a baseball fan and what led you to, to writing about, about this book? Yeah, I um, I grew up, I was always a really big sports fan. Um, I grew up in the 90s, so, you know, the NBA was incredible. And then my dad introduced me to baseball. So lots and lots of baseball watching when I was a kid. Um, I watched lots of Braves games via TBS and lots of Cub games via WGN. And uh, growing up in Kansas City, Lots of Royals games too. Um, not so much Mets. You know, we were we're, we're an American League team. So, and I grew Shots. up. I grew up in the era of you know before interleague play. Really. Um, so so yeah, we we didn't see really many um, National League teams. But my favorite team was the Mariners and. You know, I I used to just I'd be praying every season, like, please let there be at least, you know, five Sunday night games with the Mariners this season. So um, but yeah, I just I always loved baseball. And the dream when I was in high school was to I think I think I first um, started conceptualizing um, in high school what I wanted to do um, career wise. And I knew I wanted to be in sports. And I decided that I wanted to be the first female general manager of Major League Baseball team. 
And I went to school and got a degree in sport management and, you know, plan to work my way up in the front offices. And after graduation, ended up getting a job at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which I was really excited about because I went to school with a lot of folks who, you know, had their sport management degrees and didn't really get to work in the field. So I felt really, really blessed. And, you know, just I, I knew about the Negro Leagues. I knew that they had existed. I knew about players like um, Josh Gibson and Satchel Page, but I didn't really understand um, the full significance of, of these leagues, of, you know, this, this era of segregated baseball and, you know, these, these entities that were born out of, you know, the ugliness of segregation, but became this really beautiful thing, not just, you know, because of sports and this opportunity for Black players to play professionally professionally, but also what they meant to the Black community on the whole. Um, and yeah, I, I I learned about EFA there. Um, I Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the museum, gave me a tour on my first day. And I saw the picture of EFA Manley and started asking lots of questions and was really just blown away by what she accomplished as a woman and as a woman doing this in the 1930s and 40s. So it took a while, honestly, to get to the point of writing the book. Um, you know, there was lots of babies and imposter syndrome and all kinds of things thrown in in the in-between. But, um, but I always knew that her story wasn't told widely enough. You get to, you know, here we are in March and it's Women's History Month. We're coming out of Black History Month in February. And, you know, people don't really talk about Ethel. We get the same stories over and over again. So I knew that I wanted to ultimately ensure that her story got out to a wider audience. Didn't know what that would look like until, you know, 2019, early 2019. And I was like, you know what? We're coming up on the centennial of the, the first successful Negro League, Rube Foster's Negro National League that was founded in 1920. And I was like, this is the thing. Probably I should write a book. And, you know, at this point with having four kids um, had started to see really the gaps in, in children's literature, particularly when we're talking about nonfiction. And, and the need for these stories that don't just talk about history, but really pre present, um, you know, a full unvarnished look at these moments in time that maybe other people have written about, but, you know, they just they just didn't tell the story in its entirety. Um, and so I wanted to do that. Also, really coming to the page with the idea that while this is written for kids, adults can get something out of it, too. So. Also, you have so many primary resources throughout the book, which I found like fascinating. There's so many pictures. So is that, can you just tell us a little bit about the research that went into it? And like, I'm sure you were surrounded by baseball history while you were researching this book, which just sounds just fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I get this question a lot. And so I tell people that I kind of came in, like I had a little bit of a cheat code in the sense that I worked at the museum for so long and I was working in marketing and development, but, you know, we all wore many hats. So we, we still really had to know and understand this history. You know, I, I was responsible for giving tours of the museum or working in the gift shop and answering questions for people that, you know, just came in to buy a T-shirt or a hat, but wanted to know more about you know, we had a traveling bit that went around, um, you know, to different baseball stadiums during during baseball season. So 
I went along with the exhibit and had to be on hand to to answer questions for fans that thought they were just going to go to a Braves game, but came in first to check out, you know, this mobile museum that we had and then also had to be on hand to, you know, do interviews with local TV and radio and newspaper outlets. So I came into this really understanding, you know, at least the skeleton of the story that I wanted to tell. So and I say a lot for which, you know, other nonfiction writers and even journalists, you know, you understand that sometimes you're going in and the early part of the research is really just finding the story that you want to tell. Who, What's the angle? Who are the characters? What is that general narrative arc that you're going to follow? I knew that already. So that really helped streamline the process. Um, and, you know, Effa was so wonderful in so many ways. One of the ways is that she left behind, you know, a lot of her, a lot of her files. And so we've got these letters, this, co this correspondence back and forth. And, you know, we've got, um, you know, log sheets from game day so we can see what attendance was and how much each ticket costed so much that she saved um, and really just left behind um, in her home in Newark when she she moved away after she left baseball, but she left everything behind and the new owners came in and took everything to the Newark Public Library. So we have all of that. You know, we have, you know, access to, to the archives of Black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier and the Chicago Defender, which there's no way to tell the story of Black baseball without going through the Black press, because really the Black press, um, they were the only ones concerned about telling these stories. They were the only ones that saw value in, in Black baseball and what these, these men and women were doing kind of away from the mainstream. So lots of baseball research, but, you know, as you guys know, since you read it, there's also really just general, you know, history in there too. So it was really, I was really kind of all over the place, honestly. Honestly, and I wanted to make sure that I've told a fully, you know, well-rounded story. Again, if I'm coming to this thinking that primarily this is a kid's book, I wanted to go beyond how kids typically get history, right? And it's typically in snapshots. So we'll teach kids about World, World, World War II, that's one unit. And then maybe the Harlem Renaissance is another unit if they're lucky enough to get that. And then maybe integration is another thing. And maybe Jackie Robinson is another thing. And so I wanted to tie all of those pieces together so that we understand how history actually works, right? Like, and, you know, if, if, if you guys, you know, wrote your memoir at one point and you, you were talking about what happened during your life in, you know, during 2020, you can't tell that story without also talking about, you know, the, the great political divide that our country was in. You can't tell that story without also talking about the pandemic. These aren't separate things. They all work together. And so I wanted to be able to do that for kids who a lot of times are left trying to connect the dots of history on their own. So baseball history, general Black history, which is also American history, all the things come together um, in this book. Yeah, this is such a rich history of the Negro Leagues, in addition to being a wonderful story of Effa's life. And 
I I think it's incredibly timely, obviously, because back in December, right before the release of this book, um, MLB announced that the Negro Leagues would be recognized as, quote, a major league, meaning that statistics and players would go in the MLB historical record. Um, And this has had a very mixed perception from what I've seen, at least in the community. And some are heralding Mm -hmm. this as like long overdue. A lot of historians are saying, you know, it's about time. But then others are saying, you know, using words like elevate to describe the new status uh, somehow implies that black baseball is less than and that the Negro Leagues, you know, needed MLB's recognition to be special somehow when that that wasn't true before. So what do you think about this? And what do you think that EFA and other Negro League pioneers would think about this? Yeah, um, I think that it's important I think it was necessary. I think there's validity in people saying, well, the Negro Leagues didn't need this elevation or, you know, the Black community didn't need this elevation. We knew that that Black baseball was operating on this major league level before. But it's important because white baseball, major league baseball, didn't, right? So once we get into the history and once we really start talking about what happened to Black baseball, what happened post-Jackie Robinson, what happened as Branch Rickey was signing Jackie and Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb and not paying for these contracts and really, you know, putting Black baseball at a disadvantage, that all happens because... Branch Rickey and other white baseball executives didn't see the Negro Leagues as major league status. So, yeah, we're way late. You know, this is well after the fact, but it's important because even though we can't rewind time and we can't undo the mistakes of the past, we can't now require Branch Rickey to pay the Monarchs for Jackie's Ro- Jackie Robinson's contract. What we can do now, though, is have a better conversation. We can have a deeper conversation. Now we can say, yeah, Branch Rickey actually stole from these other major league outfits, right? He also essentially contributed to putting these major league outfits out of business. And oh, also, we can have a conversation about how even though you guys chose a few Black major league level players to come join Major League Baseball, you left these major league level managers and executives behind. They never had a place. In Major League Baseball, you know, we can't here's Kim Ang in 2020 becoming the first female general manager of a Major League Baseball team. Why was there no one to follow Effa? Why did it take this long? You know, when we look at Effa's career and the fact that she is the first and only woman inducted into Cooperstown, that can only happen because of the Negro Leagues, because the Major League Baseball, they didn't value inclusion and diversity the way the Negro Leagues did. And again, when they decided to integrate, they only integrated with a handful of actual players. So all of those conversations we can have now in full context. And I feel, you know, I I haven't seen this for Major League Baseball, but but to me, when you say that you're elevating the status and now now Josh Gibson's stats will sit alongside Babe Ruth, well, now we also are elevating the work of an Effa Manley, of a Rube Foster, of a Gus Greenlee. And so now we have to have that conversation, not just because of what it meant then, but also what it means today and for tomorrow. If Black people were running you know, that managing and leading black teams, black major league teams, then why are they not there now? What is the excuse now? So I think it matters a hundred percent. And I think again, 
Effa and her colleagues would say, yeah, we need this because they were the ones who got put out of business because, again, Major League Baseball didn't value what they were doing. Effa would say, absolutely, 100%, you need to acknowledge what I was doing. Right. That makes total sense. That makes total sense. And the other interesting thing about Effa that at least I found in this book um, that you discussed pretty early on is um, being of Effa being of mixed race and having lighter skin than her siblings was kind of able to take advantage of certain opportunities that weren't necessarily afforded to some of her darker skinned peers. Um, And of course, this isn't the first discussion of passing as white or navigating white versus black spaces as a light skinned black person that has been talked about both in fiction and nonfiction. I just read Vanishing Half recently, so that's what's like okay. coming to mind. Um, I don't know if yeah. you've read that book, but it's fiction, but like that's yeah. th- these themes are present in that book. Um, but it's the first time I've read about it in like a baseball context. So can you talk a little bit more about that theme and how, you know, Effa sort of floated between these two spaces and like what it, what it must have been like for her or? Yeah, I I think that again, I'm coming to this trying to tell the most thoughtful, complete story about this era of Black history, right? You know, I've said that for kids, a lot of times, and I I know it was like this for me, certainly, and probably for you guys as well, but when Black people appear in history textbooks, a lot of times we are enslaved or we are in the civil rights movement being hosed down or chased by docs. So there's stuff that happens in between there, of course. And the the interesting thing is that you can't really tell those stories again, not fully the way I want to without talking about colorism because colorism was a big deal. You know, it, this is this this seed takes root during the era of enslavement. But then when we come out of that, as we start to see, you know, black people on the whole, how do we move forward as a group, as a community? How do we how do we pull ourselves up by these proverbial bootstraps? A lot of times, in most cases, honestly, it is the lighter skin Black people who are afforded the advantages. They can get the better jobs and get the better education. And they become our thought leaders, you know, our, our, our community leaders in a lot of cases. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois is, is light skinned with wavy hair. And he says, you know what? I think it's going to be us. I think it's going to be more people like me. You know, these these people who are lighter skin, who are afforded these advantages in society that are going to be able to pull the community forward. So, again, you can't have a conversation about black people in the 20s, particularly in the 20s, but, you know, even through the 30s and 40s without having that conversation, because that is just the way of the world at that time. And yeah, Effa. Effa certainly fits into that category of, you know, someone who who has distinct advantages simply because of what she looks like. What I think make makes Effa really special is that um, she used it to her advantage. She could have passed, but she did not. And she stayed firmly rooted in the black community to the degree that this woman gets married to a regular brown skinned dude from Virginia. Right. Like she, you know, she can she can float along, you know, the upper strata of black society. And like she does some of that, like she's got a little bit of social climbing in her and like likes to dress up and like hit the parties at night. But also she really is about the common black man in a way that, you know, quite honestly, some people weren't. So yeah, I think, again, it's just one of those things that 
you got to talk about if you're going to tell the story. At least that was what I felt. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You had mentioned Branch Rickey stealing the contracts earlier. Um, That, for me, um, put him in a new kind of light because all these portrayals we see of him kind of like, oh, he's the one that took a chance on the signing of Jackie Robinson. So basically, could he tell players just to ignore their contracts? And was there any possibility of legal ramifications or were Negro League owners like Epa caught between a rock and a hard place where they wanted their players to succeed in Major League Baseball, but also realize the ramifications for their own teams? Yeah, um, I like to say that they were caught between a rock and the poorhouse because really, like, <laughs> that's what it came down to, right? Like, there's no way that we today, you know, would hear of, you know, some some general manager of some team signing some player away without even having a conversation with representation or the other team. Like, you know, I always I always talk about, you know, these scenes like in 42 or, you know, a lot of these depictions of these, this moment where Branch Rickey pulls Jackie Robinson into his office and, you know, is like, yes, I want, I want to prepare you. I'm, I want to sign you, but I need to know that you're going to be strong enough to turn the other cheek and you're not going to retaliate and all these other things. And I think we've done a good job um, of kind of dissecting that. Like, what did that mean? Um, You know, for, for Jackie Robinson as this black man, as this black man wholly committed to the black community, you know, he's, he's court martial because he doesn't want to move to the back of the bus when he's in the army. Some man who was about his people, but we don't ever talk about the fact that Jackie Robinson was there by himself. Mm. Right. There's nobody else there with him. There's no representation there. There's nobody from the Monarchs. Branch Rickey 100% pulled him to the side. And he can do that. Again, this is where it's important to have the broader context. Because right now in American society, particularly in the Black community, this is all anybody's talking about. All we all we are talking about is integration of we're sick of being second class. Why are they telling us we can't be over there with them? We want to be over there with them. So Branch Rickey can 100 percent play on those emotions. And even if it's not the best deal, Jackie probably doesn't even realize it in that moment because now he is positioned as this savior to his people as the man that's going to open the door for the rest of this of the rest of his community. And again, Jackie's that guy who cares about his people. We really see this later in in his life as, you know, this activist and an advocate, he's starting banks in Harlem and doing all of these things for his people. Branch Rickey understands that and knows that he can play on the emotion of that. And it's probably not the best business deal, but he can get Jackie to go along with it because Jackie believed in the way so many other, um, you know, of our black elders did that, you know, if we make this step, the white people will meet us halfway. If, if we make this sacrifice, they will do right by us. And of course, Major League Baseball never did. Now, while Jackie 
is making that sacrifice. Again, thinking about the whole of the community and what really the whole of the people want, which is integration. Ethel and the other owners are thinking about the same thing too. They can't go to the paper. They can't go file a suit, even though, yes, there is precedent within Black baseball. They have, they have taken each other to court, right? Based on yes. contract jumpers and all these other, they cannot do that because of the optics of the situation. The lay person doesn't understand how baseball works as a, as a business that, that Jackie in his contract are assets, you know, on the, on the spreadsheet of these, of this Monarchs team. They don't understand that. All they know is that we as a people are trying to rise up and that means integration. So they can't say anything about it. They just gotta, they just gotta roll with it. Yes. And, and kind of uh, going back, back to another thing that you had mentioned, um, baseball does tend to focus on Jackie Robinson as the one who broke the barriers um, and stood up for the, the community. But there were also so many other players instrumental to make integration a norm, which uh, it's to me, it's not totally the norm yet as, as frustrating as it is to say that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but there were so many other players instrument, uh, instrumental in this process. And what are your thoughts on kind of the lack of recognition for these players and the executives like Effa that made it possible? Yeah, I mean, this is why I wrote the book ultimately, yes. right? Like, yes. it just, it's who, who, do, who gets to tell the stories? Who gets to tell the stories, you know? It's, um, it's, it's a conversation that we have in publishing a lot about own voices and who gets to tell which stories. And... I understand when, you know, a white person sees value, a white writer sees value in, in this, you know, in any part of our history, really. But, you know, in let's say a, a case like this with Jackie Robinson and the integration of Major League Baseball. And, you know, maybe they're a baseball fan or they just understand how important these moments were. And so they want to tell that story. Well, the issue in, 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 in publishing, we talk about the importance of own voices because a lot of times these people, even, even if they're well-intentioned, they miss the larger story. And it just becomes a Jackie and Branch kind of thing with an emphasis on, you know, Branch in this kind of savior capacity because we don't even see the Negro Leagues, right? How many Jackie Robinson books are out there? A ton. How many talk about what happened to the Negro Leagues after Jackie left? How many yeah, talk yeah. about really the fact that that it was because of the Negro Leagues that really Branch Rickey can even find him and sign him? When he's coming out of UCLA, baseball is his worst sport, but really it's the best opportunity for him to make money as a professional athlete. That is because of the Negro Leagues. But Again, if you're not from this community, you don't have a full grasp of the story, you start to pick out the parts that are important or that you think are more important. And so then that same story gets retold generation to generation. And though here we are in 2021 and people are like, yo, I never knew that. So yeah, I mean, it frustrates me to no end. Um, but yeah, that's that's literally why I'm writing the book. We got to talk about Effa. We got to talk about, you know, Gus Greenlee, um, who started the second Negro National League. We got to talk about Rue Foster. We have to talk about Johnny Wright, who got signed and went to Montreal 
with Jackie and didn't make it and didn't want to bear that burden of being, you know, being the one who was carrying the community on his shoulder, didn't feel comfortable, you know, in this space, you know, around these white people in this hostile environment and ended up coming back to the Negro Leagues. His story's lost because we didn't deem him the hero, right? Like if we're Mm -hmm. honest and we talk about Black history in particular and all of these people who were first, these pioneers, what we're really saying a lot of times is, we are crowning the people who were able to withstand the torture. You know, we talk about school segregation. Who are the kids who dealt with this mess, who walked to school every day, walked through these mobs of grown white people, spitting at them and yelling at them and cussing at them and were able to withstand it. That's what we're saying. And What does that mean when some of us who wanted to be there or tried to be there couldn't handle that torture? We only talk about them. Which is wrong. Which is wrong. Because the the actions of those people um, perpetrating that torture, perpetrating that horror, quite frankly, that's, we focus, we focus on them we see them as like these one dimensional villains, but it's, it was so um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, like prevalent and that it really wasn't questioned that it was treated as the norm. And if someone could handle that, Oh my gosh, they have, they, they have this, they're like so strong and they're so wonderful when that behavior shouldn't have been happening in the first place. That's right. That's right. And it creates this precedent that, well, this is what it is, right? This is what integration looks like. You know, that was one of the one of the main things, you know, that that I want kids to to take away from this. We we teach integration in the way we do it as this inherently good thing, as in, in the way that we did it, I should say, as this yes. inherently good thing. Always. Always, always. We never look at the mechanics or the logistics of this thing. You know, if we're if we're talking again about about desegregating schools, why did we not say, all right, well, this community that has always had this white school and then the subpar black school, now we need to create a school where black and white children and children of other races can go to school together. We're going to build a new school. We're going to pull some kids from the white school and some kids from the black school. We're going to put them in this new school together. We always, 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 always require the sacrifice from the black community that has already dealt with so much. This is how we have always done it. And we've never questioned it because we keep regurgitating the story over and over and over again, as if it's okay, we prop up your Jackies and your Ruby Bridges. And we talk about this only from the standpoint of, yes, look at what they achieved and not, I'm sure they're dealing with PTSD. And also, by the Mm -hmm. way, it didn't actually change anything. It didn't actually change anything. Movements are not one on the shoulders of individuals. This is why we see later Jackie's still fighting. Jackie has endured all of this. And for what? He's still 10 years later like, yo, why does it still look like this? Why does it take till 1959 for every major league team to have at least one player? Why is there this quota system in place years after that? Why when I made this sacrifice? And I think that I think, too, with Jackie Robinson and the like this phenomenon comes out 
of like of focusing on the 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 people who persevered right and focusing on them we see it over and over like we've seen it again with henry aaron and his passing Mm -hmm. like how that he was never angry and Mm -hmm. by reducing them to these Mm one-dimensional sort of perseverance heroes we kind of you know reduce their humanity and and reduce Mm -hmm. them to just these greater than we reduce them to these gods and they were men Mm -hmm. they were men Mm -hmm. they were people Mm -hmm. who had moments of weakness who had moments of where they were angry as they should have been as they deserve to be and they we should and when we tell their stories not only should we not only focus on them and focus on the entire movements, but we should focus on them as entire people. And instead of just them in their glory moments, so to speak. Right. And it, and it sets this unreasonable bar. Again, if we're going to talk about Jackie, we got to talk about Johnny, right. We got to talk about, you know, Roy Partlow, these, these guys who didn't have Jackie's major league career, but it, it, it creates this unreasonable expectation for the rest of Black people who are like, yo, I'm pissed, yeah. right? <laughs> and I, this and I, is not working for me because no. what happens with Jackie, with Hank is what we say, oh my God, and I, and I saw it after Hank Aaron passed away. Oh my gosh, he was, he was a man of such integrity and grace and class. And so what? The dude who's like, actually, you're not going to call me the N-word and think I'm not going to say, it, does he not have integrity or grace? Or It sets this unreasonable expectation and Black people have been smashed inside this box Yes, since then because of That's how we- That was just my thought. That was mine too. <laughs> I mean, it, inside inside a box, and it works. It's it's a white. Um, oh God, what's the word? I'm like totally forgetting all my words tonight. It's a white notion that sets black pe- that set people black people up to fail because if you didn't fit this certain manner, if you didn't act this certain way, then you were locked out of baseball. Mm-hmm. You were locked out of jobs and so much more. And I feel like it also takes away the very real pain they they suffered. And, you know, it kind of like makes it easier for us to like. It soothes our consciences. Yeah. Yeah. And like, no, you need to understand exactly what they went through. So that way I feel like the understanding is the only way you can change it and make sure it doesn't happen again. That's that's exactly right. And that means that sometimes people are going to have to be uncomfortable. You know, I I write a lot about and tweet about like what's happening in country music and have kind of stepped up as an activist in that space. And I have conversations with white people every day who know a couple of black people in this space who are working in this town, but who are not really outspoken about what I know as a black person is tearing them apart. And so here I come and I'm loud. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely not. This is ridiculous. And it's like the the way the jaw struck. Like, well, what do you mean? Because I never heard this from someone. And I'm like, and now they're uncomfortable because all they've known is the smiling black guy who is really hurting inside, but for whatever reason, can't say how he really feels, right? Because he wants to be seen as though he has integrity and grace in class. And also he needs his paycheck. There's that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so then yes. somebody like me comes along. Now everybody's uncomfortable. 
because A, I'm pointing out ways in which you've gotten it wrong, but also because now I'm lifting the veil on all the things. Like I, I, I said, I've said to a lot of people, I for, for a lot of people in 2020, it's like a lot of white people, it's like you showing up you know, to, to your parents' house on Christmas one year, maybe you moved away, you've been, you've been away from home for a decade and you show up and all of a sudden your mom's not your mom, your dad's not your dad. Like nothing about what you thought about your life is actually the truth. It's all a lie. It's right. all a lie. And, and we, we, we get that when we don't have honest conversations about what was happening then. And then because of it happening then, what is also happening now. And people need to sit with their discomfort a little more. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, speaking of that sort of theme, um, because obviously sitting with one's discomfort um, goes beyond just issues of race. It goes it goes beyond that uh, to other types of people facing barriers. Um, in the book, you touched on how, you know, change often has to come from these people's peers and not necessarily mm -hmm. just from above and how white players speaking favorably about integration did something to turn the tide, which speaks toward how player driven change can happen because this, this culture in baseball and sports and insert industry here is not going to change unless the folks within the industry change it themselves. So do you think that a similar phenomenon can play out in baseball um, for communities still like still facing a lot of barriers, such as openly gay players, for instance, um, if the players do their part to create a more inclusive culture. Yeah, I think I think we all have responsibility. I think we all, you know, all of us as individuals, black, white, whatever, you know, queer or straight, we all have a responsibility in, in the spaces where we have influence because we all have some influence. We don't have as much as other people, but we all have some influence where we are and we all have a responsibility to call stuff out. We get to these moments where it's like, oh my gosh, the black people are all in the streets protesting. I don't understand how we got here. We let stuff fester and fester and fester when we got to, I think, have those un uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I'm talking about white people being uncomfortable. Black people might be uncomfortable too, right? Because a lot of times we don't want to rock the boat. Like I said, we don't want to jeopardize the paycheck, which I 100% get. Or, you know, we don't we don't want to put someone, you know, that, who we're in close relationship with, who we generally like and think is a good person, but maybe they're in a position of leadership and they have some influence and they're not doing the right things with their influence. We don't want to put them on the defensive. We like them. They're our friends. Right. But we've got we've got to do that. We've got to speak up. And what we know, too, is that when we're all speaking up, there's safety in numbers. Right. The reason why we're not having a lot of those conversations right now is because we're not all doing it together. Like if we look at what happened, you know, in the WNBA with the with the Atlanta Dream, there, there's safety in numbers. The whole team is here talking about these issues. That makes a difference. So, yeah, I think. You know, and this is where, you know, of course, I say stuff about white people, black people, too. But, you know, we, we all have to be willing to to get uncomfortable and to say the things that that need to be said. And I think that, honestly, you know, a lot of times it is those those individual conversations that can lead to to the most change. Yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to jump 
I had like more book focused questions, but since we're on those like back and forth one-on-one conversations, uh, you talk a little bit about um, Bloomstein's and the Citizens League. That was an example of like the back and forth one-on-one conversations that on a smaller scale, well, like differs with the the large scale Black Lives Matter movement um, that we kind of see the the larger um, protests and gatherings. Um, So do you think, obviously you did say that already, do you think more of these smaller one-on-one conversations are needed in addition to larger scale movements like Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. to help share these experiences and to better understand them? Especially, uh, I'm adding on to this, but especially in um, communities that don't necessarily have the experience like I I can say I live in an extremely white community I live in a wealthy community that doesn't that we're in this bubble so Mm -hmm. when when we we there's when we get go outside that bubble it's super uncomfortable and there's a lot of uncomfortable talk around it as well yeah yeah I I do I think I think they're both important I think the large scale um, protests and movements, I think are valuable because then it's on everybody's radar. Right. So yes. then if you sit down across the table from someone, they're not going to be like, girl, what are you talking about? You sound crazy. <laughs> right. Like it's kind of, you know, it's top of mind for everyone because it's in the national conscious. But I do think that it is those individual conversations that move the needle. You know, if we're talking just about, you know, the, the large scale stuff that happens, it's easy for people who again are in those positions of power to make change, it's easy for them to duck away from that, right? Like it's easy for them to say, ah, this is not about me, you know, to not really pay attention, but you can really hold somebody to task if you're sitting directly across from them. So, you know, I'll take this back to country music because this is a space where I'm really active. And, you know, there's, we saw like, you know, post George Floyd, you know, the entire industry, people are posting hashtags and black squares and black lives matter this. And, you know, all of those things. And it's fine. And I'm watching from afar and I'm like, before we get to the hashtags, I know things that you could be doing right now in the space where you are, right? You're the Opry, your house band is white and has always been super white, like hire a black musician. It's not that hard. But again, if we're just talking large scale, they see themselves as participants in that because they posted their hashtag. Yeah. But now when I sit across the table now, you 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 really you're really concerned about not just being performative but about actually doing the work and now you're willing to sit across from me as we have coffee or lunch and I can say how many black people are in your house man? Now it's a different ball game. Now your mm-hmm. hashtag doesn't matter. And now you can't duck and, you know, pass the buck to somebody else. Now your feet are to the fire. That's that's where that's where the change happens. And it, it, it works when, to the point of Effa in the book, when people are willing to be honest and have those conversations. Effa sits across from the owner, you know, of the department store. She's like, yo, like, okay, so you're not going to hire these, these girls. What are they going to do? Become prostitutes? Ugh. She's I, willing I love to that say, scene in the book. Yeah, I, I did too. Page, ni- page ninety-three. Oh my god! <laughs> like she's willing like, to oh, say, Stanley, "Don't say such a thing." Exactly. exactly. <laughs> their, delicate, their delicate sensibilities were offended. Right. God, but that, but that, but that moved the needle because she yes. was willing to say the things that needed to be said, even if it made people uncomfortable. So yeah, 
the conversations that matter most are often happening in, in smaller groups, one-on-one or small groups, but also they're only effective if you're willing to be honest and really yes. willing to say the hard things. And not sugarcoat anything. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to bounce back to, these are more book focused questions. My, my next couple of questions. So okay. Um, were there other player managers in the early 1900s or was Rube Foster's position unique um, within the Negro League? Because the only other player manager I'm aware of, and this might be like a historical thing I'm just I'm just goofing on, the only other player manager that was in the major leagues that I'm aware of is Pete Rose. So yeah, so there... there... Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, yeah, I mean, that was, it was actually pretty common um, manager in the sense of like a player manager, um, the manager being on the field. Um, yeah, um, Effa actually, Biz Mackey, who was a great, you know, catcher in the Negro Leagues, later came on, Effa brought him on um, as a player manager. And he was one who, he was the one who was really instrumental in helping develop Don Newcomb into this, you know, this great pitcher who would ultimately, you know, be, be stolen away by Branch Rickey, but, you know, go on to have this incredible career with the Dodgers. So, so yeah, that was, that was actually relatively common. Okay. See, I didn't, I didn't realize that, which that's, there's so much I learned in this book. Oh my gosh. Yay. <laughs> that's it, like, and it, sorry, I'm going completely off tangent here, but I just, You're fine. I, um, after I read this, I went to my, I work in two different libraries and I went to just try and find all of the material I could on the Negro leagues. And okay. I, I surprisingly found a, a fair amount of picture book biographies. Yeah. Um, which is great, but not a whole lot of adult literature, which made me a little sad. That might just be like the libraries, but just these, just all of these resources helped just expose me to so much that I didn't know before. And I, I, um, and again, this is like a very white perspective. And I, I didn't think it was meaningless that MLB elevated the Negro league stats But at the same time, like on page 174, you mentioned that um, they kept, I think it's one page 174, let me go look. Um, (laughs) Yes, that the the records weren't always kept. Yeah. So um, those stats aren't going to be the most accurate. Um, However, it made me want to learn the history a lot more and it exposed me um, and made me question like, okay, I don't know much about this. Um, so what can I learn? What, what resources can I find? And I feel very fortunate that you said, uh, you did a lot of your research at, uh, at the Newark public library because I'm 25 minutes away from it. So that, Yay! Well, that it's all, it's all di- yeah, it's digitized too. So, I mean, yes. even if you don't want to go, you can hop online. So yeah. Yeah. I'm also a children's librarian. Yay! So Yay! It made my heart so happy that this was geared more towards children. Yes. Um, and I bought it for my library. Um, Yay! So, and also I feel like, you know, children are just naturally inquisitive. And so yes. like Kellyanne said, like you read something and you want to read more of it. Like kids like want everything on every subject. Like mm-hmm. they really love a subject they want everything on it. So I'm hoping like, you know, something like women, like we have nobody to look up to in baseball. Mm -hmm. And so to introduce Effa as a woman to look up to, I think is, is 
revolutionary because, you know, it, growing up, it's like baseball, there's no place for me. And right. she proves that there is a place or there could be a place. Yeah. So I think, you know, gearing it towards children also is, you know, because we've always said, you know, representation matters. And she just represents so much for so many people. And I don't know if that many people know about her, which mm-hmm. is, which is a shame because, you know, like we, like I said, a girl could really relate to her or maybe not her same circumstances, but at least look up to her. Yeah. I mean, it's a hundred percent the book that I would have like devoured and like slept on, you know, kept under my pillow when I was sleeping at night when I was a kid. Like, yeah, it definitely, I mean, and there were, uh, there were other women owners, you know, before Effa and white baseball and black baseball, but, you know, and, uh, and a lot of times they, you know, they inherited um, their teams, you know, if a, if a father or a husband passed away, but Effa's story is really remarkable because she has this team and she's running it. Like she's running it on the day to day. Like she's not, she doesn't just own the team on paper, but then she's got to hire, you know, the president or the GM who's actually making the decisions. Like she's making all the decisions. So yeah, I think it really speaks to, you know, again, just, you know, her tenacity and her brilliance and her savvy. And I think it's a great story um, for girls. I think it's a great story for boys. I think it's really a great story, you know, for everyone. I I continue to say, um, you know, in all of these tons of interviews that I'm doing that it really, I think if, if, if there's one takeaway, it's, you know, what, what are we capable of, right? If, if in the twenties, thirties and forties, you know, we had black people that were running teams and running leagues. And, you know, there was a woman, you know, in the midst of it all, really leading the way um, in, in a lot of ways. What does that mean for today? You know, I, I have I have kids and they are athletes and I love sports and I, I support them in all the things to the degree that, you know, my husband and I are you know, driving thousands of miles, you know, <laughs> yep. you know from of practice here and games here and all the things. And I love that. But I also want my kids to know that it is possible to aspire to the front office. You know, they can aspire to the ownership box. And this story teaches that. If we look at Major League Baseball right now, if we look at the landscape, it, it, it doesn't look great. Right. It doesn't, no. you know, if, if, if I'm a, if I'm a black girl or even a black boy, like, and that's dicey. Yeah. Th- that's why I said that earlier with my question. Cause I was, I was reading my question is like, Hmm, there were other players instrumental to make integration a norm and it's not really a norm right now. It's not. Yeah, it's not. But I think if we look back on the, you know, we talk a lot about this, like seeing is believing and that kind of thing. Um, I think, I think it's worth looking to the past. If we look to the past and we, and we really understand the history, I think it changes everything. I think it changes, you know, like I said, for, for, for black kids, for, for young girls who may feel marginalized right now, like there's no place for them. It opens up a world of possibility. It shows them that, 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 that it is possible. You know, we, if we're looking at, you know, right now, who is not, in the front offices, who's not in the ownership boxes. A lot of that is because, yeah, there may be people coming along who got turned away, but also I know that there's a lot of people who are not trying 
because they don't even mm-hmm. think it's possible. And so I hope that this book at least lets kids know it's possible to try. And you know what? They may be turning away people, you know, one or two people here and there. But if we show up in mass, you can't turn us all away. Right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And you you touch a lot on these issues in like the epilogue of the book. And you talk about how like if Eva were alive today, she'd be upset to see how black players make up just 8% of major leaguers right now. And there aren't a lot of black faces or female faces in major league front offices, but she'd be hopeful too. And like, what do you think should be done to preserve the tradition of other than writing this book, of course, but what do you think should be done to preserve the tradition of black baseball and get the current generation, like your kids generation invested in the game and love and love the game? Because we all know that baseball is also like really bad at marketing itself. And so so bad at marketing, (laughs) like it's so bad. It's so, oh my gosh, like we need another hour because I have thoughts. Because no, I mean, it's and, it, and I see it from all perspectives. Like I see it as someone who like grew up with the game. And like, so I know why I was into it. And I also like my, my sons play baseball and I see like what the teams look like, right? Like who's mm. there and who's not. And yeah, I think it is. I think, I think it does start with the history. Um, my book included, but (laughs) I think it, yeah, I think it does. I think it does matter that we, I think it's important that we really shed a light on these, these hidden stories and, and really talk about, um, the fullness of black baseball and what it meant, not just the players. And this is where, you know, major league could do a better job. We're always talking about the players, but the players only could play on teams. They were only, they only had teams to play on and leagues to, you know, be a part of because of the work of these managers and executives. So we got to talk about that too. Um, you know, I'm excited to see, what happens with Ken Griffey Jr. You know, now that he's, you know, now he has this job with major league baseball. It's not just because he's my all time favorites, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, I, I know that. So my kids, my sons, so I've got, I got one daughter who's a gymnast. So that's a, that's a whole other thing, but (laughs) my oldest daughter plays basketball. Oh gosh. Yes. (laughs) Listen, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but, but my oldest daughter plays basketball and then my two sons play basketball, football, and baseball. Now the basketball and football would have happened anyway, because my, my husband played and he, you know, he's, he, he's that dad that, oh, I play football. Come on, let's go. And you're going to be the quarterback and da, 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 da. They only are into baseball because of their mom. Right. And my my husband didn't have that connection. He didn't have that relationship with baseball like I did. And I've seen how this like replicates itself over and over. And of course we can go back to again history. There's 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 historical receipt for everything that we that we see happening right now right now. Like nothing is coincidence. And this is in baseball and country music and all aspects of life. And so when you get, you know, okay, major league baseball, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see major league baseball is integrating (laughs) with Jackie Robinson, but it's really just a couple players at a time. It takes till 59 for every team to get one. You know, we've got this quota system, but also what's happening in basketball and football right now doesn't look like that. Right. 
Right. It's yeah. much more open for black players. So now if we look at what is happening generationally, and I saw this in my own family with like, you know, my, my grandfather played baseball. My uncles were kind of into it. By the time we get to the gener- the next generation, it's just not the thing anymore. Right. And a lot of that, if, if again, if we're talking about kids who are really into sports, athletes who are really want, into sports and want to take it as far as they can. When you go back to the 50s and 60s and you know that if you're not the absolute best, you're not going to get a shot. And we know this because of this quota system, like you've got to be the best Mm, or you're not going to get a shot. The Negro leagues no longer exist. So like I said, like if you're, if you're a pitcher and you're not like first or second in in the rotation, you don't have a job anymore. You can be an okay white pitcher, but you can't be an okay black pitcher. There's no room for you because major league baseball only wants the absolute best of the best. Now the Negro leagues don't exist anymore to catch the rest of everybody else. So if you if you are not literally the cream of the crop, that is not a channel for you anymore. So now, yeah, you may pivot over to ba- uh, basketball or football or whatever. Well, then what happens when you have kids and you didn't play baseball? Are you going to take your kids out to play or are Probably you going to shift them in another direction? So there's a, there's a ton of layers to this thing that ultimately Major League Baseball, <laughs> you know, mm. needs needs to pick up the slack for sure. But I think it's, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go back to, again, like understanding the history, telling these stories, really getting kids to shift their paradigm of possibility. Right. It's, it's just so frustrating to see that instead of having these types of conversations, Major League Baseball is like, oh, a runner on second in extra yes. innings, uh, to pace mean, of play. The... And it's like, these are not yeah. the things that are your problem. Buddy. And you know, and I and I'm like, I I never and I mean I used to well I could go to a double header and like it would feel like the day would just fly by. Like I I I understand the concerns. We're in a different world now. There's that like go, go, go instant gratification thing, but I never felt like pace of game was the problem uh-uh. because if I'm there and Ken Griffey Jr., right? Like I'm like <laughs> He's he's batting third, bat around, bat around, get back to yes. him, like right, like right. somebody in the ball to center field, like it just it's a different experience when you have people there that 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 kids are drawn to that they can relate to, and if we're talking about diversity, these kids don't have anybody that they can look to, and again, partisan, I don't know. Listen, it's the first time I've said this, and I'm 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 working on a piece about it, but. Major League Baseball, hire me. No, uh, but when we when we go and we were just at Dick's for both of my sons buying stuff. Now, they listen, I'm their mom. So they love King Griffey Jr. Hopefully he's coming back with the swing man stuff. I will give him all my money. It's not even a question. <laughs> right. But literally, literally. And I'm seeing all these other parents that are in there spending all their money at Dick's and guess what the options are like just the regular like brand name stuff and then mike trout is everywhere there's no mookie stuff there's no tim anderson like i'm like why are these dudes like not freaking everywhere and i know like the players alliance went out and did some stuff which i'm super excited about but yeah like let's let's get let's get these people you know out and let's show kids what is possible like kids want to be LeBron and Steph because them dudes are everywhere mm-hmm. right they're yeah. everywhere so 
yeah, they should just hire me. But anyway, yeah. They I mean, <laughs> and, and going going back to marketing the stars, I also think it's a matter of accessibility as yes. well, just from top to bottom. Like we see MLB kind of knock themselves out with the blackout contracts um, between teams because I would love to watch like the West Coast teams, the Central teams for sure. Um, and I can't unless they're playing the Mets. That's um, right. But it, but it goes beyond Major League, and I. To me, from my perspective, and Andrea, you can tell me if I am incorrect. Um, the there's a financial aspect to young baseball teams, little league teams, because mm-hmm. most of them are travel teams, mm-hmm. and there are many people, many um, children of color, that don't have the money to do that, that don't have that kind of access, and I think. Mm-hmm starting that development at a young age kind of like evolves into becoming a major, a college player, a major league player. And those kids don't have that. So Mm -hmm. that's why they turn away from it. I, that's sort of what I see. Is that something you see or. Yeah. No, is there something different? It's hella expensive. Like it's real expensive. Like my, yes. yeah, I, I have, I have a kid playing travel ball right now. It's expensive, but I will say this and I don't want to oversimplify it. I know like this is literally not the point of the interview, but, <laughs> but sorry, I had but, to bring that up though. No, but, but what we all, what we know though, is that money comes when there is enough talent or enough reason for people to get behind kids right aau basketball is expensive right these kids are traveling like they're doing all the things they also have sponsorships because there there's there's a trajectory for this right and these people see the, how they can make you know the shoe companies or whatever they know how they can make their money on these kids once they get to college and then get to the pros and so i think it's a combination of yes eliminating that financial barrier, but it also has to be generating interest. Like I don't see, I think we can push major league baseball, like individually, you know, individual teams and on, on the organization as a whole and say, okay, yes, you should be investing in these communities and blah, blah, blah. But I don't ever see that happening when there aren't kids rushing out to want to be on these teams. And that's not happening. That's just right. not happening. And anybody who doesn't say that is not honest or doesn't have kids, because I see it and that it's not happening. It's just not happening like that. There, that level of interest is not there. And so I think it, I think it is a, I don't, it, it, like with all issues, it's not, there's not one silver bullet thing that's going to fix it. It's, it's a multitude of things. And part of that is, yeah, we got to get black kids excited about playing baseball again. And they're just not really, not on the whole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Baseball. But that's also Major League Baseball's fault. So yeah. yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and they have the they have those the the play ball initiative, but yeah. Yeah, I, I it's I mean I say if because I don't see it really doing much. Yeah. I mean, I when I was at the museum, we did a lot with like the local RBI and it was just yeah. I mean <laughs> They need to hire me. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yes, they do. You're I mean, so like, knowledgeable and so passionate about this, and that's what baseball needs. That's yeah. what baseball needs. And like, I'm again, like, 
it's just it's so frustrating to see like all the guys who are running and i say guys because it's mostly white guys yeah all the guys who are running baseball like don't seem to actually like baseball as part of the problem like yes and like the the quotes that i've seen griffey give already about like how he he's like i don't care about these pace of play changes i'm like finally somebody in charge i mean i don't like yeah nobody cares about what i think you know i me with my you know my Negro League book and my, you know, 3,400 followers or whatever on Twitter. But I, as a lifelong baseball fan, am not concerned about pace, pace of play. Not even a little bit. Not right. even a little bit. No, like, why do I want less baseball? I'm a baseball fan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and I will tell you, and for the arguments about, you know, well, the kids these days and da-da-da. When, when my when my kids know somebody on the team, they know who they're rooting for. Like, they'll watch Vanderbilt. They, I mean, there are a ton of black guys on that team. When they have a reason why, they don't care about pace of play either. You know, we, my, my kids are the ones that, I mean, we'll, they'll sit and watch, you know, hours and hours of something if there's a reason for them to be interested in it. So I, I think that's a cop out because people don't want to do the work, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. Like, have you seen kids watch, like, the, their favorite cartoon? Like they'll watch it over for four and over hours. On yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, are you serious? <laughs> and you think that they won't watch three hours of baseball if there's a reason for them to watch it? Like, come yeah. on. So yeah. we need we need more people like Effa. We need more people like you. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that show that passion, that show that drive, that uh, show that passion for baseball. Really had that have had and have that love, yeah. which yeah. seems to be lacking in the front offices who view it more as a business and players as commodities rather than talented human beings. Yeah. And look, like, I mean, I have a PhD in a scientific discipline. I'm as nerdy as they come about analytics and, like, all that stuff. But there's – analytics is a double-edged sword. It's it's given us tools that are really good things and data-driven – approaches to players improving their performance i think all of that is great but there's a downside there's a sacrifice to that and it comes with sacrificing some of the humanity in the game and i think that the game has suffered for it i think the game has suffered for seeing these players as spreadsheets and that Mm -hmm. those are the type and because the front offices are full of these like you know finance bro white dudes like this is Mm -hmm. how they look at these players and i think that the game has suffered for that and we need perspectives that are different (laughs) Yeah. And they're just assets again. It's like, what what have you done for me lately? And right. as soon as you're not making the owners billions, you're no longer valuable. That's basically how they look at it. Yeah. Anyway, this this is fabulous. This has been a fabulous <laughs> conversation, Andrea. This I, this I just so love amazing. this discussion. And I loved this book. So please, yes. please tell our yes. listeners where they can find this book. Um, because everyone yeah. should read it. Yeah, I've always wanted to say it's it's available wherever books are sold. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. it, right, and now I can say that it is it's available wherever books are sold. But um, my local independent bookstore support support your local indie. Yeah. Support, support mine. Parnassus Books in Nashville actually has some signed inventory. Um, So yeah, so if you order from them, you can get a signed copy. Heck yes. So please. Scribbled. 
<laughs> scribbled it down. Yes. Um, yes. Even though I have this, and I just, I'm going to say as a person that loves print books and just loves the sensory experience. Of I book, do too. Is, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. my God. This is when I first got this book, I was like, oh my God, this is like such a good feel. This cover's great. That the pages are beautiful. The text is so nice to read. And yeah. Oh, it just made well, me very thank happy. thank you. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hold it in my hand girl too, for sure. Like oh. I can't quite get with the ebook thing. So, but also I like to watch three hours of baseball. So, you yes. know, I'm yeah. old. I get, I'm, I'm, the kids would say I'm an old. Apparently. An old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, no, I have people tell me that all the time too. So you and I have that in common. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, we are old souls. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so find find it wherever books are sold, but Parnassus books in particular, maybe you can get yourself a signed copy. But in the meantime, before we close out the show, we will end the show like we do every week with Walk Off Wins, where each of us talks about what is making us happy this week, baseball related or otherwise. So Andrea Williams, what is something that made you happy this week? I am happy about Renee Montgomery being part of the new ownership group of the Atlanta Dream because I am pro-Black ownership. So yes, if we're going to talk about the Negro Leagues and talk about, you know, again, the ramifications of integration, particularly in the way we did it, Black people do not have ownership. But we did. We did. We had ownership. We were really there controlling um, teams and revenue really as, as baseball was really in its heyday as this national pastime. And now we don't have ownership and that changes the game. When you don't have control, you can't choose who's in the front offices. You can't choose who's on the field. So um, very excited about Renee Montgomery. That is yes. Awesome. And definitely a reason to be excited. Um, Linda Surovich, what is your walk-off win for this week? I don't know. Mine's not as like up to that standard. <laughs> they <laughs> are big and small. With that. <laughs> um, my walk-off win was, you know, we love our insomnia cookies here <laughs> on the podcast. And I was thinking about getting some more and I visited my parents today and after work and my mom goes, oh, I have insomnia cookies. Do you want some? <laughs> so it was just that little like surprise. Um, yeah. It was like that little extra sweetness that just brightened up my day. Like I had a tough day. And the fact that insomnia cookies were there waiting for me, which I totally did not realize. And of course, you know how I feel about red velvet. She had a red velvet cookie for me. So that was my little... My little, my little treat and my, my walk-off win is my, we got, I got my insomnia cookies. Who doesn't love surprise cookies? I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I can never turn it Cookies are wonderful. That's all I have to say about that. Cookies are (laughs) wonderful. Kellyanne Healy, what is your walk-off win for this week? Um, It is National Read Aloud Month. Yay! Yay! Books. (laughs) So I think the adults should be reading Baseball's Leading Lady to each other. Um, I'm a big proponent of reading everything out loud. Um, so that's, that's my walk off win. just the opportunity to promote literacy this month and reading between family members, um, significant others, uh, story times. You can read to pets. Pets. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so therapeutic. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just any opportunity to read aloud. It's so much fun, and I'm really excited that it's a focus this month. That's my walk-off win. <laughs> Excellent. Love that. 
My walk-off win for this week is a simple one, and it's just that baseball is back. Spring training is is underway officially, and I got to, and you know, work from home has many pros and cons, um, but one big pro is that I can put spring training games on in the background while I do my work (laughs) during Mm -hmm. the day, um, which was something I haven't, I, I don't think I've watched a complete spring training game in years, and you don't get, you don't have to like sit in the office and like have the tab hidden in case you know the boss comes in <laughs> right oh, I that was gosh, me today yes. yes yeah i can just I like i always said i want to jump in i know this is not my walk-off situation no but please <laughs> i always said when i was and I, I guess this was part of why i wanted to work in a front office for a major league baseball team but i just remember like being like hating to go to have to go to school on opening day and i was yeah. like roll up I'm going to have a job where I can watch baseball on opening day. And yep. now I can write and watch all the baseball at once. So, no, I thought, I love that. Yes. Opening yeah, day luckily, needs to be a national holiday. It yes, really does. Agree. Strong agree. Luckily, I, because um, I was, the Mets, for, for better or for worse, are, are the ESPN game on opening day. And so the Mets okay. are actually playing in the evening. So nobody will have to deal with it being during work or at least people who work normal nine to five hours won't have to deal with that um but luckily for me today yes yeah (laughs) but downside it's espn instead of our beloved gary keith and ron but you know um take the good with the bad um but yeah today i just i was just really happy today because i got to watch a spring training game like while i was just working along on my laptop and it made me so happy and i was just so Mm -hmm. happy to see marcus stroman back on the mound like it's been a year because he opted out last season due to covid concerns Mm -hmm. and so and and you know obviously most mets fans at least mets fans in our circle anyway were thrilled when he signed the qualifying offer when he accepted the qualifying offer with the mets and so we're so happy to have marcus Marcus Stroman back and his stuff looked absolutely filthy and I just like can't wait <laughs> to see him I, pitch. He's so good. <laughs> Speaking I, of I, like really I, great I, black players in baseball, Marcus Stroman is a great one. Um, I, I, just caught so a few hi- I caught a few highlights of it. I haven't watched the full game, unfortunately, but he had his pitches. He had this little like pause and his pitching was just fantastic. I love when he does that. I love when he does. I just like, like, don't buck, don't buck. Well, the when balance he must have is incredible. Do that. Yes. I yeah. love that. He, and that's he does gonna, a little, that's like, drive batters a little delay on the mound. Yeah, he's been playing with his timing, and he has does a little, like, shimmy, a little delay before he pitches. And it's it's cool to watch him play with it um, and play with his timing and mess with the hitter's timing. It's just interesting to watch him approach his craft because he's clearly so thoughtful about it. He has a new pitch that he debuted today, his split finger, and it looks nasty. So I just <laughs> think he is ready for this season. I'm so excited to have him. And he's so positive on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter, Twitter is Twitter. such, like, when he, it's Twitter is such, like, a negative place sometimes and he yeah. is just a ray of light and positivity no vibe vampires allowed that's marcus <laughs> like i'll uh, wait I'm like these past couple days i've been waking up and feeling like down i look at his twitter and he's like it's such like a positive start to the day and i feel better yeah it's great <laughs> i love him so yeah i just that- love our team this year so yeah, I'm pretty pumped about the Mets. So yeah, I, I that's my walk-off win, just getting to watch spring training baseball and Marcus Stroman on the mound. Very excited for baseball to be back. And uh yeah, starting next week we'll we'll be we'll be resuming weekly pods for you guys because baseball's back. So um 
get excited for that. Um, in the meantime, you can follow um, Amazing Avenue on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can read all of our spring training content. We're in the midst of our uh, season preview series. You can read about each of the players on the 40-man roster um, and a couple of the non-roster invitees to spring training this year. Talk about what their role might be in 2021. Um, you can follow each of us on Twitter. I am at Petite PhD. Where are you, Linda? At Linda Servich. You, Kellyanne? I am the phonetic spelling of L-R-B, E-L-L-A-R-E-B-E-E. <laughs> and Andrea Williams, where can our listeners find you on the social media? I am at Andrea Wilwright. I love L-R-B, though. That's super cute. Thank you. It's it's off of my username. I'm a moderator on Amazing Avenue, so and my username is La Roma Bella, uh, the beautiful Rome, because I, I yeah. I'm Italian. I love Italy, so I just okay. decided to make the initials of that because everybody calls gotcha. me LRB now too. Yeah, <laughs> yep, love it. Um, so that's where you can find all of us, and you can find Amazing Avenue. You can subscribe to this podcast and the entire Amazing Avenue suite of pods. Look for Amazing Avenue Audio wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show. It really helps people find it. The original intro and outro music to this podcast is by Bunga. Let's go Mets, and don't forget there is no crying in podcasts.